Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, Vice President of Trapello and one of the hosts of the Precision Medicine Podcast. And today we have Michael Kaloje, Chief Innovation Officer at Advi Health, very much a pioneer in developing value-based reimbursement models for cancer care. And Dr. Kaloje, thank you for taking time to come on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Jerome. You know, so I heard you speak, for all of our listeners out there, I heard you speak at FLASCO, the Florida Association of Clinical Oncology, where you were the closing keynote speaker. Some of you may have heard him speak in different forms, but your talk was titled The Healthcare Landscape of 2025. Now, the subtopic, the subtitle was Three Trends That Will Change Cancer Care Forever. Now, you know, Dr. Kaloje, I got to admit, like when you hear topics like that, some part of the brain kind of goes, oh, come on, right? But at the end of your talk, I mean, it wasn't just me, it was other people who were like, yeah, what he said, you know? So first of all, before we dive into those three trends, I'd love to give our listeners a little background on you. You've had a very successful career as a practicing medical oncologist and also a business executive. Can you share kind of your path to Advi Health and also tell us what the company does. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I would say that like a lot of people, exactly how my career turned out wasn't what I thought it was going to be when I started. And after finishing my training in hematology oncology, I decided to go into academic medicine, which I did for a while and I got tenure and decided that wasn't quite for me. So I joined U.S. Oncology back in 1997. The reason I joined U.S. Oncology is because I didn't know anything about how the business of oncology actually worked. I think it's a sad statement that when we train fellows in hematology oncology, although the vast majority of them do wind up going into clinical practice, they have very little understanding of exactly how that sausage is made. Yeah. I thought, well, shoot, I should go to a company that knows what they're doing. And that turned out to be one of the best decisions I ever made in my career. I uh, moved to upstate New York. My wife is from New York, so we moved to New York. And uh, my wife is also an oncologist. We both joined the practice here in upstate New York. And I had a very excellent mentor who had recruited me here. And he decided that I had some leadership skills that perhaps could be useful in U.S. oncology. So I began a clinical community oncology practice here in, in Albany, and I did that for 15 years. During that period of time, I also became very involved in U.S. oncology, initially in the research committee area, and then subsequently in the uh, pharmacy and therapeutics committee, where I became chairman, and I uh, got to become part of the executive leadership team. Now, in the U.S. Oncology Network, the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee is really the most active clinical committee. And mm -hmm. so I was there when we developed the Clinical Pathways Program at U.S. Oncology, which is now quite well known. I was there when we developed our version of the Oncology Medical Home long before it was even a thought mm -hmm. for CMMI. I had a very, very great time 
at US Oncology, both because I love the people I worked with, I love the work I did, I love patient care, and I learned a ton. In 2013, I decided to change directions a little bit. I had met many people over my career and was able to secure a position at Aetna, which at the time and is currently still the third largest national health insurance company. The role that I was asked to fill at Aetna was to help develop oncology strategy. And at Aetna, I was very blessed to work with people who believed that there was value in developing an oncology medical home program. We built on the learnings of John Sprandio and Barb McEnany, and we formed what continues to be the largest national payer program with community oncology practices. I also got to do pretty much everything an oncologist might want to do within a payer because anybody who's ever dealt with a payer knows there's not that many oncologists who work there. So again, I had a really great opportunity to learn all kinds of stuff. And I really worked with some excellent people. I was at Aetna three and a half years, and then I went to Flatiron Health. I had known folks at Flatiron literally from their conception. And I always thought that there was a wonderful opportunity to use their framework to work on developing a novel payment models. And so we looked at many of the practices that were working with Flatiron Health and helped them with the OCM. And uh, after about a year and a half, I was concerned that I wasn't making the kind of progress I wanted to make and was recruited by Advi. Advi is a Washington, D.C.-based healthcare consulting and strategy firm. We work with a, a, an extremely broad spectrum of clients from, on the one extreme, provider groups through many life science companies, including biopharma, medical devices, complex molecular diagnostics. I was able to apply many of the learnings that I had with my experience at U.S. Oncology and then subsequently my experience at Aetna. Everybody is sort of confused about how payers make decisions. And so that fundamental knowledge that I gained there is something that people value. So on one, any one day of the week, I might be working on a complex molecular diagnostic test in prostate cancer. And then on another day of the week, be talking to a biopharma company about what's going to happen with the oncology care model and what commercial payers are doing. So that's what I do now. It has been a very interesting job. I, again, have been blessed to work with people that I really like. The CEO of the company and one of the partners and the chief medical officer, Mark Samuels and Louis Jacques, respectively, have been friends of mine for many, many years. And we have a lot of fun. So that's what's important. I can tell from just hearing your keynote at Flasco that you do have this very comprehensive knowledge of just this particular sector that we're going to talk about and getting into your talk in the three trends. So you talked about biosimilars, payer reform, and alternative payer models. So just dealing with the first one being biosimilars, can you help us better understand, I guess, what biosimilars are? And in cancer care, what malignancies are you seeing the most activity for biosimilar drug development? Sure. The easiest way to think of a biosimilar is from the context of a generic drug. Now, I'm sure your listeners are going to go nuts when they hear me say that, Mm -hmm. but it really is the right framework to consider it. So I don't think there's anybody in America, and certainly no provider in America, who doesn't use a generic drug every single day. And in fact, generic drugs have, to a great extent, 
been a profound, favorable influence on the cost of medical care in America. Why do I say that? Well, if you look back prior to 1984, there literally were almost no generic drugs. And in 1984, a very important piece of legislation, the Hatch-Waxman Act, was passed. The Hatch-Waxman Act, which to this day is applauded as one of the most influential and important pieces of healthcare legislation ever passed, developed a pathway by which generic drugs were approved, by which reference products were protected. It introduced an avenue where America, and I do literally mean America, derived tremendous value after a period of market exclusivity based on the patent of various drugs that resulted in significant reduction in the cost of life-saving therapies. So when I gave the talk, I jokingly said that, you know, I finished medical school in 1984, so I was there when this happened, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be patients were remarkably skeptical that generics were okay. In fact, people would come in all the time and ask you to write on the prescription, dispense as written. That is, they wanted the brand name drug. But generics have become such a an important part of the fabric of medical care. And I think if you talk to biopharma, they would readily admit that America has gotten a lot of value from that generic phase of the drug treatment's life cycle. It's just the way it is. Now, it turns out that in the last 15 or so years, many of the most important advances in medical therapeutics are not uh, simple small molecules. They're, in fact, complex molecules generally created in living cells through genetic engineering. And these complex molecules are kind of grouped under the heading of biologics. If you look, for example, in oncology and look at the cost of therapies in oncology, conventional chemotherapy versus biologic, it's absolutely crystal clear that mm -hmm. in the last 10 or 15 years, the trend towards the trend that is driving increasing cost has been around development and implementation of biologic strategies. Now, I will tell you that the one exception to that is really just in the last couple years, and that's immuno-oncologic therapy, right? So IO therapy is a little bit different than what we're talking about here, but let's leave that aside for the moment. Now, there has been, or there was never clearly, the same sort of path towards a generic opportunity for biologic agents. Why? Because generic molecules, generic medicines are exact copies, exact copies of the originator medicine. Hmm. And biologics are far, far too complicated. So in 2009, an important law was passed by Congress called the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act. That law developed the framework by which the FDA could evaluate and Medicare and other payers could pay for molecules that had the same biological activity as the reference biological product. Now, the hypothesis was that as those biologics came off patent, there would be the opportunity to develop lower cost alternatives. There was never, ever, ever the illusion that these lower cost alternatives would be easy to make. Mm -hmm. And there really was never 
contrary to what some people have written, there was never the illusion that the price decrease would be the same as we have seen with the generic drugs. But biosimilars are the result of a pathway from a single source biologic agent to a, quote, generic equivalent. Now, we are in early days. Interestingly, Europe has been using biosimilars since 2006 because they basically developed this regulatory path before we did. And if you look at the biosimilar spectrum in America today, in oncology specifically, the only biosimilars that are currently available are for supportive care agents, specifically growth factors. So erythropoietin, short-acting GCSF, and now long-acting GCSF. Those are the only ones that are currently commercially available. We will see within the next year in the market biosimilars for rituxan and for Herceptin. And those biosimilars will compete directly with the reference products. There are other biosimilars outside of oncology. There are biosimilars in the anti-inflammatory space, biosimilars, for example, Humira and Remicade. And it would be fair to say that people have been a little bit disappointed Number one, and how rapidly these biosimilar products have come to market, because FDA approval and market availability, those are not the same thing. These are very complex molecules that takes a while to get up to commercial speed. So that's one thing that's bothered people. The other thing that's bothered people is that at market entry, the biosimilars have not been discounted as much as perhaps people had hoped. Now, I would suggest that people just hold on a minute. (laughs) And the reason I say that is because I think if you look back at generic drugs, there's an important lesson. And the lesson is that the, the minute a generic drug hits the market, it is not much less expensive than the reference product. But by the time you get the fourth competitor, in the market, then you start to see significant price decreases. And and we've actually seen this in oncology just very, very recently. So the example in oncology, which I pointed out in the talk, is in the CML space. So Gleevec was a miraculous drug, right? I mean, I don't think any oncologist who saw a patient with CML before Gleevec will ever forget what Gleevec did for that disease. It just completely yeah. changed it. Absolutely. And Gleevec was quite expensive. I mean, it didn't start out expensive, but over the years, there were steady prices and increases. And by the end, it was pretty darn expensive. When Gleevec first went generic, everybody was expecting, oh, goodness, we're going to see a drop in the price and everybody's... And, and the drop was really slow. And people started to freak. They really did. I was at Aetna at the time, and believe me, we started to freak. But actually, as it turns out, as more Gleevec generics have entered the market, imatinib generics, we have seen a substantial price decrease. In fact, to the tune of about a 75% discount. So people who argue that we're not reaping the benefits, and just recently, Peter Bach and Mark Trusheim wrote an article saying that we should just abandon this idea that the market is a solution for biological molecule price decreases. I believe they're totally wrong. I think we have learned from experience that until you get significant competition in the the generic market, and now subsequently, I believe, in the biosimilar market, we will ultimately see a decrease. And that is, of course, what Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA, said all along. So I agree with Scott. You know, I'll remind people, keep in mind that you were the former National Medical Director of Oncology Solutions at Aetna. We recently spoke to one of your good colleagues, Dr. Lee Newcomer. 
former executive at United Healthcare. He mentioned kind of on the topic that there seems to be an issue with a lack of competition in the marketplace, which encourages drug costs to to increase instead of decrease. Yep. He talks about the FDA mandate that required all insurance companies to pay for all cancer drugs. And we see cases where drugs have come on the market and subsequent therapies that may have a you know more potency and longer duration of response come to the market. And those initial drugs increase their price instead of decrease their price. I mean, why does that not sound right? Why is that and what needs to be done to reverse that kind of a trend? Sure. I've heard Lee say this many times, obviously. He and I have dueled, I guess you would say, in the editorial press about what the correct solution is. I think there's a fair amount of truth in what he says. And I think the heart of what he says is this. Because payers are required to pay for all drugs, there is no universe in which there's the ability to walk away. And if there's no ability to walk away, there's no ability to bargain. There's no leverage on the payer's part. Now, we've seen indications from the current administration that they are interested in using more market-based remedy to allow more aggressive negotiations around price. They have, for example, enabled commercial Medicare Advantage payers to do step therapy, even across benefits. So what's the solution? The solution is that I think any reasonable human being will look at a therapeutic class of drugs and come to the conclusion that there isn't much difference between many of the drugs. And if that's the case, I don't think there's anything wrong with negotiating around cost as long as patients have access to the necessary sometimes life-saving therapies. Mm -hmm. What I say to providers, and I said it in the Flasco talk, is let me give you a choice. I'm going to let you prescribe a drug in a very effective class, and I'm going to remove every single impediment that you have. I'm going to waive prior authorization. And what's more, I'm going to let the patient have it without a (laughs) co-payment. Sounds great, right? Absolutely. Here's the catch. There's six drugs in the class. You can only use the one I tell you. Mm. Will you take it or will you not take it? Now, I'm not in a position to enforce that. But in fact, I don't think that approach is so far flung that we won't see it. And I would say, much to the dismay of a lot of the people that I work with, that uh, there's a lot of belief that the IO class of drugs, particularly the pdl one class, is setting themselves up for that kind of approach. And I think that's primarily because all of them are pursuing labeled indications that overlap with labeled indications of other drugs in the class. So if you permit a payer to manage multiple drugs in a class in that fashion, then I believe that there is an opportunity actually to drive down cost. You've been listening to part one of our conversation with Dr. Michael Kologe from Advi Health on three trends that will change cancer care forever. Be sure to look out for part two, where he shares powerful information about payer reform and alternative payer models. The Precision Medicine Podcast is sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. 
To learn more, visit GetTrapello.com. We want to thank all of our listeners today, and we hope you'll subscribe at PrecisionMedicinePodcast.com to get updates on new episodes or to download transcripts. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify. And don't forget, we welcome your review. We also invite you to join the conversation on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights Company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. Thank you.